Let us open up our Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. After you get your Bibles open to Hebrews 11, you knew I was going to do this. Uh, Open up your pillars of truth. Your pillars of truth, this is just a depository of doctrinal truths that are based upon the Word of God. These, of course, are not the Word of God. This is just uh, the churches recognizing, not inventing, not creating, but discovering the biblical truths that are contained in the Word of God. I want you to turn to page number 10. This is part of my introduction. You'll see how we work it in. Page number 10, this is chapter 3 of the Second London Confession of Faith, and it's dealing with, in this chapter, the decrees of God, or of God's decree. I want us to look together at paragraph number 1, the introductory paragraph. Page 10 of the Second London Confession of Faith here in the Pillars of Truth. It says in paragraph 1, as you follow along, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things, whatsoever comes to pass. And then you see the scripture citation there. There's a selection of scriptures that they're basing that biblical statement upon. Continuing on here, we've got the semicolon. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears is wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. I shared that um, at the beginning of my message today because we've already shared a lot, haven't we, from these old confessional and catechetical standards in chapter 11 that's dealing with God's providence, uh, the assurance of faith, the perseverance of faith, uh, that's kind of expected. Chapter 11 is dealing a lot with enduring faith, making it unto the end. But as I was studying and preparing in the life of Moses, as we're going to consider today, Moses is the object of our passage that we're going to see. Um, really what come to the surface is what we just read there in paragraph number one. It's a lot of technical doctrine, but I want you to see with me, and I'll be careful to point it out in today's message, how in the life of Moses... Moses lived out that reality. Moses believed the God of the Bible. He believed that God decreed all things. His family, we're going to see, believed that. But yet also, they were engaged in the walk of faith. And I just think it's a beautiful biblical picture to kind of have in the the backdrop. Now, I'm not going to hijack the, the theme of the text because all of the theme of chapter 11 is very simple make it to the end. It's a message about enduring unto the end. 
But we've got to be careful as we're going along, right, to see when there's biblical truths and biblical doctrines in there that we can bring out and be encouraged that we're on safe and solid ground in the faith that we confess and the doctrines that we believe. So that was part of the introduction, okay? I want to uh, now come to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 4. We're going to read down to verse 29. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it being dead, yet he speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God of things not seen, as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in the tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. On the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. And for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that hath received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped 
leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense or payment of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, which the Egyptians assailing them to do were drowned. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. There is a a very related scripture in the writings of the inspired Apostle Paul from Romans 15.4. I want to share with you, kind of get us started here. He says in Romans 15.4, Whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, those things written aforetime, listen to what Paul says, might have hope. Whatsoever things were written aforetime, Romans 15.4, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Well, friends, as we have been going through the book of Hebrews chapter 11, as we have been looking at each one of these individual patriarchs of the faith categorized in this chapter, we have come to know that that is true. These things that were written aforetime of them are here for our learning. They're here to encourage us in patience, to give us comfort. Why? So that we have hope. So that we have hope. We have seen, have we not, since the very beginning with Abel, that in every age of redemptive history, in each step of God's unfolding His plan of the promise, that faithful men and women, we have discovered, have what? Kept hope. They have persevered unto the end. Beginning with Abel in verse 4, then Enoch, then Noah. The witness has been overarchingly undeniable. That God's people, His true elect people, His true converted blood-bought people, they endure in the faith unto the very end. We have seen so far something very peculiar about them, and you picked it up in the text when we read it, that helped them make it to the end. They viewed themselves as spiritual soldiers. We have discussed that. We've talked about that. They viewed themselves in this language called pilgrims. Just basically meaning while they were present here on this earth, they were looking past the physical realities to a much more heavenly reality 
a much more spiritual reality that could only be ascertained, laid hold of, by the eyes of faith. It was interesting, I thought, last week when I was worshiping at the church in Arizona. I come in that Sunday morning and I took my seat, you know, amongst the other worshipers that were gathered there. And this older gentleman walked in on a walker cane with his wife. And he sat down next to me. And after a short while, we began to greet one another in the Lord and get to know one another a little bit. And, and I, I come to find out that this man had been a Christian and had been on his pilgrim journey walking with the Lord for over 50 years. Now, I'm 48. This guy's been walking with the Lord for over 50 years, meaning he's been in his sojourning uh, pilgrim travels longer than I've been alive. And so I wanted to, you know, what do you, these are the opportunities you love as a Christian. I don't know about you, but I love talking with the old pilgrims in the church. I love hearing from them. How have you made it this far? If we had more time, he could have told me more stories about when he almost gave up or he wanted to just throw the towel in or how he wanted to just, you know, just, you know, go move on an island by himself because the church is doing this, doing that. You know, I mean, it, there's stories all over the place with these people that have been converted that long. And so I asked him, his name was Clyde. I said, Clyde, Brother Clyde, I said, I've been converted, you know, since 2001. You've been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. Tell me, what is the piece of advice you would give me of how you've made it this far? You know what he said? I wake up each morning, I give thanks to God for saving my soul, and I ask Jesus to continue to have mercy upon me. I give thanks to God for opening my eyes and saving my soul, and I plead with Him to continue to have mercy in my life so that I make it to the end. Friends, I only shared this story about Clyde because as we're going to see with Moses, the characteristics is the same. Moses, like Abraham, like Jake, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Enoch, Abel, he's a sinner saved by grace and he is on his journey unto the end and he continually needs God's mercy to get him to the end. The message today is very simply Moses' enduring faith. Moses' enduring faith. We see that come out as we pick up our study of the book of Hebrews in verse 23 all the way down through 29. Verse 23 is introduced by faith. Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. I would suggest to you that we break down the text under two simple headings. The first is going to be the role of family in Moses' enduring faith. You have a copy of the sermon outline, you know where I'm going in the the sermon uh, trip today. Our first stop is going to be looking at verse 23 and parking in and considering the role of family in Moses' enduring faith. And then from verses 24 to 29, I want us to consider what we're seeing here. And this is what we've kind of been doing, right? We've been looking at the attributes of enduring faith. What is it that each one of these particular Old Testament patriarchs who the inspired uh, apostle here is showing forth for us, can teach us about what we want to cultivate in our own life. And so Moses, I'm going to bring forth some attributes that we have not yet looked at in some of the other Old Testament patriarchs, right? So let's look at and consider in verse 23 the role of family in Moses' enduring faith. 
Now, admittedly, at first glance, there's not much to build upon here in verse 23 regarding the family of Moses and their role regarding his enduring faith. I admit that. I mean, look at it. All it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hid three months by his parents. Okay? How are we going to build upon this? Well, friends, from the historical account of Moses in Exodus, I want you to be convinced and see that there's much more in verse 23 behind their actions of what they did which I believe is presenting before us something that's important that God wants us to see that is contributing or will contribute eventually to Moses' enduring faith. So in other words, what I want us to see in a moment is that the actions of his parents was much more than preserving fraternally because of their love for him as being their child a physical life. It was much more than that. They did that, and that was noble, and that was good. But there's much more here. And in order to understand that, I'm going to get you down in the notes now, we have to understand a little bit and acquaint ourselves with Moses' parents. I'm going to be honest with you, it's been a long time since I've studied anything about Moses and his genealogy. right? So all that I'm giving you in your sermon notes is what I studied in my own time. And I hope that you find it precious, as I did. So you see there his parents' names was what? Amram and Jochebed. These are Moses' parents. These are the ones that are being talked about in verse 23. Now we don't get a lot of details about his father, Amram. But we do know, as you see in your notes from Exodus 6.18, we do know who Amram's father was. You see there in your sermon notes, he was the son of Kahath. Now, Koath or Kahath, however you pronounce Amram's father's name, it's interesting because he, Amron's father, he was, guess what, the son of Levi, the original Levi, the one and only Levi. In Genesis 46.11, we learned that. So Amron's father was the son of Levi. And this makes Amron, Moses' father, Levi's grandson. So now, just get the picture here. You've got Levi that we're going to learn about here in a moment, in case you haven't acquainted yourself with Levi in a while, right? And we, and we, we can tend to do that. We, this is what's great about the Lord's Day. We get to open up and dig down into the trenches of the Bible and reacquaint ourselves with what God has been doing in redemptive history with all these great patriarchs of the faith. Well, Matt, get the picture. you got Levi, his son Kahath, and you got Moses' dad as a little boy running around. And he's listening to Levi talk. He's listened to the Levi disciple Kohath and his family. No doubt, if, if I may catechize Amram too, as he's running around and wanting to play, right? That's the picture. That's Moses' daddy. So we know that Levi is Amram's grandfather. But let's, 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 let's draw out the emphasis of what's even more significant about Levi. You see it in Malachi here. This is the last recorded book in the Old Testament from Malachi, chapter 2, in verses 5 and 6. We get this as if it were uh, a characteristic or personality survey of this guy, Levi. So just look at it with me real quick. This is Amram, Moses' father's granddad. My covenant with him, 
God here is speaking about Levi through the prophet Malachi. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave to them, and, and I gave them, sorry, to him, Levi, as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in all of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. This is uh, Amram, Moses' dad's grandfather. And unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and in uprightness. Look at this. Levi turned many back from iniquity. Now, the Bible only refers to three people in all 66 books of men who could be described as walking with God. There was Enoch, there was Noah, and there's this guy Levi, who's the grandfather of Amram, Moses' dad, who put Moses in the water, right? From Malachi, we can at least observe these character traits about Amram's grandfather. Levi referred or Levi revered God. See in the text? He adored God. He revered God. Another character trait of Levi, he stood in awe of God's name. He had, a, in other words, a reverential fear of God. Remember, in Levi's historical context, many after the flood had already began to go their own ways. Noah and his family, and through Levi, they're still professing, they're still preaching, they're still teaching their families of the one true living God. So Amram, Moses' father, is running around and hearing that. He's hearing the promise. He's hearing the covenant promises that was made in the Proto-Evangelium. Right? This was what Moses was preaching. So he's hearing that. Unrighteousness, we see, was not found in Levi's lips. He wouldn't speak evil or of unclean things. He, he sought to keep his clan, his tribe, his sphere of influence filtered from these things that were going on after the flood period. It said that he, the text says that he walked in peace and uprightness. His life could be looked at as someone who walked out. It, it evidenced that. You knew that he was a man who was, in fact, in all of God's name. He instructed his family. He, was, uh, he revered God's ways. And it was evident in his life. But what I drew ten- attention to there in Malachi 2.6 is that notice that he turned many back from iniquity. So in other words, Levi, um, equipped by God's Spirit, not only is still walking with the Lord, he's teaching and he's preaching, but he also had very strong moral influence upon others. It's only responsible and it's only reasonable for us to conclude that that influence of gospel light, of gospel truth, gospel promise, if it was on others outside of his home, would have been also within his home. That's not a far stretch. That's not a far stretch. Now this connection with Levi, this faithful, consistent, sacrificial, godly man over his son Kahath, over his grandchildren, guess what? It gets even more interesting when you look at Moses' parents because Moses' mother, Jochebed, that's Levi's daughter. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. That means that Moses' dad married his aunt? Yeah, he did. He did. And, and if you want a whole rundown about why 
this time shortly after the flood, this was commonplace, later outlawed by the Mosaic Law. Talk to Nolan. He loves to talk about that in the apologetics ministry and, and all of that stuff after church. Brother Nolan, I feel you and all that. I don't want to use up my time today. But it is the truth. That's what happened. So Jochebed, now we see Moses' mother, is even more intimately closer and connected with the gospel through Levi. So you have Moses' mother, who's the daughter of Levi. You got Moses' father, who is the grandson of Levi. And they have Moses. They have Moses. The reason I labor to prove that point, friends, is that if indeed the case is, which we see in the text today, they were motivated by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. Moses didn't hide himself, did he? His parents hid him. What was the faith that Amram and Jochebed, and we're going to learn about in a minute, Miriam, his sister, motivated by? It was motivated by the same faith you have. The gospel faith. The faith in the promise. The faith of the coming Messiah. So in other words, think about this. Amram, Jochebed, Levi, Miriam, all of the Jews who were at this time redemptive history in the bondage of Egypt, every time a male child was born, they were thinking to themselves, this could be the Messiah. This could be the one who's going to deliver us as the gospel, the good news, promised message has been passed down to us. So now do you see why by faith they acted the way they did? Dear friends, it was much more than them preserving fraternally the life of their son. They still believed in the promise. They still had hope in the promise. What did Paul tell us in the text? Why are these things important for us to dig down into? Why is it important to understand the genealogy of Moses' parents connected with Levi? They're written aforetime so that they may encourage you and I in patience and comfort that we may have hope. His parents are motivated by the hope in the gospel. And they didn't act alone. We know from the Exodus count that also his sister Miriam was actually the one who convinced the daughter of Pharaoh to allow one of the Hebrew women to nurse and to care for the child Moses. So little ones, you guys know the story, right? Moses' mother and father put him in the basket. He goes down the river. But who was tiptoeing in the brush? Who was tiptoeing along the river to see what happened to Moses? It was Miriam. And what did Miriam do? She used her influence in any way she could that when Pharaoh's daughter found him, she spoke up and she said, why don't you give her to one of your nurses and let them nurse him and keep him alive and adopt him as one of your own? What was it that motivated Miriam to do that? Yes, indeed. It was because she loved her brother. It was her little brother. But I want you to see, little ones here today, as you see that Miriam had a belief in the promise that God had given them. And Moses could be part of fulfilling that promise. And so they acted. They did 
out of their own volitional will, what their hearts desired to do, which was to save their family member, but at the same time, hopefully preserve the promise that was given. And this now brings in living color for us what we read at the beginning of our sermon about God's decree. You have it in your notes. I believed and I thought that when I saw this, this was a wonderful Bible lesson in this great mystery of how God's decrees and God's sovereignty and man's actions and man's responsibility work in living color. Now, you know what we read before we went into our sermon today about God's plan? God planned all of this. He he planned Moses. He planned the context and the providence which Moses' family found themselves in that kind of forced them to do what they did and the actions they took. He did all of that. But there are some people who object to this idea that we read, that the all-knowing God actually decrees and brings about all things in history. And the reason they reject to it, it's kind of obvious to us, especially in the Western culture, because it makes us feel as though that it robs man of his freedom, doesn't it? It's almost antithetical to the essential idea of freedom. And there's two ways to look at freedom, either a, free that's, a freedom that's totally liberated and free or a freedom that's stained or tinged and not entirely free. And so that's why a lot of people are objecting to God's decreeing all plans and all things. But God's absolute sovereignty in his plan, here especially in the case of Moses and his parents, and their responsibility to do what they did, these are twin truths in the Bible. And I believe here we're seeing those twin truths come to the surface in this text. Notice with me verse 21, or I'm sorry, verse 23. Moses' parents, by faith, believed God's promise and they defied the king's command. And this was their responsibility to do. Wouldn't it have been easy, brothers and sisters, for them to say, well, hey, in God's sovereignty, we just got this tyrannical king here, you know? After all, the king said, all of the, the civil magistrate, right? He said, we're going to murder all the babies, and uh, we just need to do, God put this king here, so forth and so on. No, no, no. It was not only their duty as parents to preserve their child in as much as they could, But it was their responsibility also to do whatever they could to preserve the promise. For every male child that would have been, and and we have no reason to believe this, but follow with me in the illustration. For every male child that would have been voluntarily forfeited, what? The covenant people of God, they would have been voluntarily forfeiting their claim to the promise that they say they believed. Why? Why? Because God said, through your loins of Abraham, through your seed, there shall the Messiah come. So if someone just voluntarily offered their son, you see, God, yes, decreed that the king would be there. God did, yes, decree that the persecution would come. And the king wanted to do nothing but bring persecution. God didn't have to put that evil in his heart. He wanted to do it, you see. But what did they have the responsibility to do? To do and to be faithful to what God had commanded them, Right? Faithful parents, protectors, uh, faithful covenant keepers. Keep the sons alive in as much as you can because through them will come the promised seed. It's very easy for us today to look around at our circumstances and we begin to, in a way, allow God's sovereignty 
to excuse our disobedience. It's very easy for us to do that. I mean, because after all, this is the way that he wants it, so it's happening like this, and so therefore, you know, I'm not going to do this, this, and this, and that. And, 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 and while we can look at this picture, I, what I want to draw out for us is that God ordained, and he had the providential context in which this family is being faithful and trying to not only save their son, but save the gospel promise, the hope of the gospel promise, and they did not know how it was going to end. Right? They just kept their heads down and they were faithful. People of God in a difficult time and God used it to bring about Moses who is a man who exhibits this wonderful enduring faith unto the very end. What a lesson for us, beloved. What a lesson for us. Miriam the same way. It was ethically her responsibility to do all she could to tiptoe in the, in the bushes and try to influence that Moses be handed over to Pharaoh's daughter. But at the end of the day, Amram, Jochebed, and Miriam all understood this. Oh God, we do all that we can do, but we know ultimately it's in your control. It is in your control. So to conclude just this temporary examination of the role of their family, a role, I'm sorry, of Moses' family, let's just observe this very simple truth. As parents, as siblings, as family, we are by faith to obey that which God has revealed to us and the rest is in His hands. We only do what we can do, brothers and sisters. Moses' parents nor his sister could predict what would become of Moses. However, they trusted, they obeyed, and no doubt they prayed. Amen? And they left the outcome to God. And can I offer to you this? This truth that we read at the beginning of the sermon about God's decree and the simple understanding of our role in His providence and His decree, this is where the anxious, concerned heart will find true rest and peace. How? Because knowing that the way things are right now are simply the way they are supposed to be. Let me say that again. This is where the anxious heart can find rest and peace by understanding that the way things are right now are the way they're supposed to be. You see, that doesn't excuse us for trying to change things. It doesn't excuse us for coming to the Lord and repenting of areas in our life where we need to repent individually or corporately as the church. It doesn't remove us for wanting to have a goal and anticipation and expectations. But understanding that God controls the here and the now, the things the way they are, are what they are because that's just the way they got to be, you can set back. And you could say, God, I know you got everything under control. Yes, my heart wants to be there and I'm here. I want my marriage to be there, but it's here. I want my children to be there, but they're here. But that's okay, because that's exactly the way you want it to be now. And so it removes from us, beloved. It removes from Moses' parents. 
it removed from his sister. This heavy, big, burdensome weight that I have to control, I have to manipulate, I have to plan, I have to scheme, I have to figure everything out. No, you don't. No, you do not. You very simply, as Spurgeon said, in any conflict you find yourself in, you need to believe in the gospel, you need to teach the gospel, you need to live the gospel. And in so much, he went on to say, as we follow that apostolic pattern, we will have apostolic success. Beloved, being a Christian in any cultural context is to rest in God's sovereignty and at the same time be active and motivated by this truth that He's given you clear communications of what to do and the rest is in His hands. We must rest in His divine providence and enjoy the security and the peace of mind that such a sovereignty affords us. Let's move on here to the various attributes as they're outlined in your notes. Verses 24 and 25, they introduce us to the first of what I'm calling the attributes of Moses' enduring faith. Notice that that begins with his willingness to suffer. His willingness, this is an attribute of enduring faith, that type of faith that's going to make it unto the end. It has to be part of a willingness to suffer rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You have it in your text there. I gave it to you in Exodus 2.10. He grew, the, he grew, the child grew, Moses' child, he grew. And Pharaoh brought him into her house and she became her son. As Pharaoh's grandson here, it is beyond our imagination of the pleasures of what Moses had at his disposal. He would have had the resources to satisfy all of his desires. For Moses, as Pharaoh's grandson, there would have been nothing off limits for him. Nothing. But notice what the text says. The text identifies them as pleasures for a season, the authorized version says. Some of your translations will say passing pleasures of sin. I think this is important for us to stop and think about as we're considering what do we need to cultivate and foster in our lives and ensure that we make it unto the end. Well, friends, none of us in here is going to deny the fact, I don't think you would, that sin can be pleasurable. It is, right? It's pleasurable. There's certain things that God commands us not to do that we do, and it brings us some sort of satisfaction, or you could say pleasure. But also God's word warns us that this pleasure of sin, as we see in the text here, it is evil and it's always passing. It's never permanent. It's interesting. I give it to you in your notes here. The word that's translated passing in the Greek, it means just for the occasion, just for temporary. And the pleasures that Egypt offered to Moses, Moses was given faith to see that these pleasures, oh, and they were, you cannot even list them. You wouldn't even be able to list them all. Nothing, like I said, was off limits. It was all right there at his fingertips. God, 
the Spirit gave this man through conversion the reality and the enablement to see that these things would not last. They would only be for a short time. But why would they be for a short time? This is what the Spirit of God would enable Moses to see because he would have been able to see they were just a physical nature. First of all, the first reason why the pleasures of sin, the things that are off limits, are temporary is because they're of a physical nature. The pleasure that sin offers are physical and therefore they only can be temporary. When we have them, because they're temporal, our physical, what? Flesh wants more because it just lasts for a little bit of time. And so we want more and more and more and more and more. So it's, only, it's temporal because of its physical nature. But another thing too is the reality that sinful pleasure, and again, only the Spirit of God can show people this, it doesn't go unpunished. The certainty of judgment makes any pleasure of sin enjoyed, yes it is, quite temporary, but the Spirit of God shows that not only is it temporary, but that that pleasurable sin will be judged. I think James draws this out very clearly. There, James is writing to a church where some in the church actually had fallen into the ditch of trusting in the pleasures of life more than walking with God. He says in James 5.5, 5, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. But we see later on, in that same chapter, we see in that same chapter, in the end, these things that are gained, they all vanish away, these pleasures of sin. He says in verses 1 through 3, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. There's the judgment language. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. And regarding the pleasures spoken of here, I'm not convinced that Moses at all was tempted. The text doesn't say it. I'm not going to imply that he was involved in immoral sin at Pharaoh's house. But he understood in some way, brothers and sisters, for me to remain in Pharaoh's house, for me to still be plugged into, engaged in, and surrounded by the Egyptian context that I have all the privilege, all the freedom. Moses didn't decry Christian liberty. What Moses said is this, I can see, is only temporal. I have to get away from this. Because the satisfaction that that can bring is only physical. And as we read in the verse earlier, I'm seeking something much more. I'm seeking something that can bring pleasure that far outweighs what any physical pleasure can bring. God, we understand, was placing a call in his life for a work that was destined for him to do that far outweighed the physical, you could say, earthly pleasures of sin that he possibly can have gotten entangled into. We know that he has sensed this call in his life because Stephen says this in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 25, as you see in your notes. Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. At this point in the story, his brothers didn't understand it, but Moses definitely understood the calling on his life. And the calling on his life, it far outweighed the physical pleasures that he could have 
enjoyed abundantly in Egypt. No, I'm going to suffer affliction. I'm going to walk away from these pleasures. And I'm going to heed the calling that God has on my life. Moses, hey, his friends in Egypt would have said, buddy, what are you doing? Can't you do both? Can't you do both? Can't you enjoy all these pleasures? Moses, in order to follow the calling in his life, had to make the sacrifice and leave it. And that included suffering. And he did it. And that is an important part of enduring faith. All every single one of us. There's got to be, I, I have not heard one testimony of every any Christian that has been told to me that they didn't have to give up something that was pleasurable to them. The, the pilgrims that I have always interacted with had said, yes, I found so much pleasure in that, but it wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't building up the man or woman of God in me. It wasn't building up the spiritual person in me. Oh yeah, my brain liked to get excited about it. But when I really sat on and examined it, it really didn't build me up in the faith. It really in no way was used to edify the one another's in Scripture like I'm called to do. And I had to, get, I had to let go of it. I had to let go of it. Just as God had used Joseph to bless his people, God was going to now use Moses and it required Moses to give up these pleasures that he could have enjoyed in Egypt and to suffer. And what Moses demonstrates for us is that enduring faith that makes it to the end is one that is willing to make this sort of sacrifice, beloved. In a sense, there is a truth in saying this old, I don't know, is this an English proverb? You can't have your cake and eat it too? In a sense, that is, in tr- that is true in some cases. For those who are trying to make it to the end. You may have to be required to give up the cake. You may be required to give up the cake and the ice cream. I don't know. We notice that the Holy Spirit enabled Moses, we see in verse 26, to have a correct perception of what true treasure is. Look at verse 26. He esteemed the approach of Christ greater riches. Then we see this word, treasures in Egypt. Verse 25, we've got pleasures, right? And then in verse 26, we have treasures. And when he looked at those, he's comparing that to what's being told to him that lies in store for those who believe in the eternal bliss. And Moses says, those earthly treasures cannot compare to what I'm going to have in the spiritual reality. The treasures of Egypt, this is an expression, many commentators point out, that denotes the boundless wealth that Moses could have enjoyed. And by today's standard, even the Egyptian wealth in Pharaoh's house would have been astonishing. Uh, there was something in the news where the two richest men had a photograph together this past week, and you know, I saw that. It's like, okay, whatever. You know, it doesn't make you important. It's borrowed money, probably most of the money on paper and on screens and all that stuff. It ain't the kind of wealth that Pharaoh had. Pharaoh had the gold in the chest. That's real wealth. And in fact, I don't know if you guys know this, but in King Tut's tomb, when they found, when they explored that, up until that point, I'd have to check my history, I don't know if this is still true, but up until that point, King Tut's tomb, it had more gold in one room that had ever been discovered up until that point. So Moses had that access to that type of treasure. 
He had access to that type of wealth, that type of power, because with wealth comes earthly carnal power. He had access to that all. But notice what the text says. He had respect, it says, unto the payment of the reward. Well, what was the reward? What in the world could cause a man to look at what he could have and say no to it? Let me rephrase that. What would cause a man who already has, it's not that he could have, he already had it, which is what makes this aspect of the attributes of his enduring faith just that much more powerful. Uh, many men possibly could say when they get older, yeah, no, I'm not interested in that stuff no more. I've been there, done that. You see? But when they're younger, they wanted it. Right? Uh, wealth, uh, power, ability, influence, so forth and so on. But Moses, we're seeing here, at a young life, already possessed it, and he gave it over. He gave it up. It wasn't like he could have had it. He did have it. But what was it? Well, we read it today. It was verse 16 of this chapter. He desired a better country. That is a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not to be ashamed to be called his God. That's what he saw. This is what enduring faith possesses. A faith that makes it to the end. Doesn't get caught up with all of the trinkets. It's never going to forfeit what it has in Christ what it has in the people of God in order to pursue earthly treasures, earthly power, or earthly pleasures. Here in verse 26, Moses demonstrates for us that enduring faith, the type that makes it in the end, perceives what true treasure is in contrast to what the world calls treasure. And it's this, having communion with God and having communion with His people. Moses didn't forsake all that to go live in a hut by himself. No, he went to go have communion with God's people and to lead them, to help them. That's what he counted as more treasure. Having right communion with God and right communion with God's people was worth more than all the materialistic riches of Egypt or this world. A peace of conscience with God and a peace of conscience with the communion of his family was worth more than anything that Egypt could offer Moses. Brothers and sisters, can we relate to this choice of Moses? Do we count God and our communion with Him more precious than anything that could get us sidelined or distracted in the world today? Do we count having peace and communion with His people as precious, even though it may come with some suffering, more than we do with the things of this day? Listen, you don't hear Pastor Doug get on a soapbox about the Sabbath day and things on the Sabbath day. But let me just speak very bluntly and try to apply this text for you. Okay? If there was an international race going on on the Sabbath day, right? And Moses had a choice. Am I going to go commune with God and commune with God's people on that day? Or am I going to go to the worldly fair event and forsake that you know what enduring faith does? It says this. Man, so much fun down there. Man, the guys got me the free tickets. Man, I remember back in the day I knew all the drivers. Right? I know all the in and outs about it. Enduring faith, the type of faith that makes it to the end, will say, I'm going to have communion with God. 
I'm going to have communion with God's people. Why? Because I love him. Because he has changed my heart. He has changed my affections. He has shown me that what they have over there, that, 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 that the backwards country preacher, those backward, sometimes difficult, weird people called Christians, what they have there is indeed more valuable than what everybody down here and what that few hours of excitement can ever give me. That's enduring faith, friends. That's what Moses is showing us. He was able to perceive true treasures. Ask yourself, can you relate to his example? What are the treasures seek to get you distracted? Be honest. Ask yourself, what is it? But look at the verse 27, the third attribute, move forward. He has a fear of God versus a fear of man. This verse further shows us that Moses' choice to trust God despite the immediate personal hardships, and this is in connection with suffering, and it's also just very crucial to enduring faith. You have got to be able to walk in the fear of God rather than the fear and the reproaches of men. shouldn't surprise us, right? Even though it's not biologically descended, but there is an example in his family. Moses never saw it, of course. I get that. But it's still, we see in verse 23, his family was willing to do that too, right? Why? Because they had enduring faith. And so we see this attribute, we see this characteristic of enduring faith that exemplifies itself in all of the people of God. Not only did Abram, Jochebed, and Miriam did it, but guess who else does it? Not because they inherited through blood, because of a new birth. Moses does what? He's able to face and stare down the most powerful man at that time, look him square in the eye, and say, let God's people go. And that's in addition to everything that he forfeited and gave up. How could someone do such a thing? Because they've been born again. They understand the spiritual reality. This is why King, uh, this is why Paul stood before King Agrippa. This is why so many men uh, that we read about in the Bible were willing to stand up. You remember Daniel? We read about Daniel standing up with King Nebuchadnezzar. We were learning about King Nebuchadnezzar. How are they able to do that, Jonathan? Because they understand, dear brother, the moment anyone does something to this body, they're immediately in the presence of the Lord. We are all here as pilgrims. We are all here in this time to do a very specific task. We're all called out of darkness into light to advance the kingdom of Christ through the gospel. And the moment you're taken out of this life, brother, you're into that beatific vision that none of us could even barely imagine. But it's real. Moses understood that. Miriam understood it. His parents understood it. Noah, Enoch, Abel. All of these people did. All of these people did. They had a true fear of God. It says in the text that they endured as seeing Him who is invisible. In other words, they had this... We talked about this before when we talked about Enoch walking with God. They did have this constant sense that God was always with them. Always seeing what they were doing. Not in a, I'm waiting to zap you thing. No, just that God was there. They were constantly aware that that He is real and and that this uh, created realm that I'm in, it's real. And God really is watching what I'm doing and what 
what I, what I purpose to do in his plan. That was Moses. He saw past Pharaoh and he could see the one who is invisible and say, you don't have nothing on me. God is with me. Who can be against me, Pharaoh? Even you. Kill me right now. God's, advance, God's plans are still going to advance. Paul certainly had this, didn't he, as you see in your notes. It's just interesting. You see these attributes of those who endure to the end. This is what we want to foster. God, help us to shrug off the fear of men. Help us to shrug off the embarrassment of being a Christian. Help us to shrug off of standing for the truth. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be to life or to death, for me to, be, for me to live as Christ, for me to die is gain. You see the echo? Paul, Moses had that understanding, that attribute. Paul had that attribute. And dear Christian friends, let us have that same attribute. Let us have that same attribute. Jesus definitely wanted his first disciples to understand this. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear him which is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Enduring faith knows to be absent from this life is to be present with the Lord. And so therefore, we will not fear men, but we will fear our God. Amen? Lastly, verses 28-29. We see attribute number four. Attribute number four. Trusting obedience. First attribute, willing to suffer. The second one, perceiving what true treasure is. The third one, walking in the fear of God and not men. In Moses' life we see at least... And there's many more you could go... If we were actually in Exodus, you would see many more of what Moses did. I was thinking about how to approach this. I wanted to stick with the text. But we could go into how Moses was a mediator. A lot of times people think of Moses as this really hard guy. And I think he was a tough guy. I think when I envision Moses in my sanctified imagination, I see him as a guy that you would not want to mess with. Um, We know that he had a temper. um, But... He was, in a lot of ways, a very soft man, too. I think in Moses, you have a very balanced character. You remember how he went before God and pleaded with God? You know, take me, don't take them. Give them, remember what you promised to them, God? You know, he was a mediator. He loved the people, even though they murmured and complained, questioned his judgment all the time, etc., etc. But what we see here, there's many attributes in his life. But here we have the fourth one in verses 28-29 of his trusting obedience. His trusting obedience in verses 28 and 29. Moses' actions during the first Passover and after that, the crossing of the Red Sea, they served to demonstrate this other important attribute of enduring faith, which is trusting obedience unto God. So, you know the narrative in Exodus, I'm sure, where the plagues have come. Moses, up until this point, has exhibited a fear of God and not the fear of man, not the fear of Pharaoh. Right? He's pronouncing these judgments upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is being hardened. Plague after plague after plague. What does Pharaoh do? Does he soften? Does he start willing to negotiate? Toward the end, he starts looking like he's going to negotiate. No, the text demonstrates a man who becomes more dug in on his resistance to the judgment of God, doesn't it? Now, you would think that you're following through these very peculiar supernatural events that are taking place that 
God, if, if, if a plague of locusts and a plague of frogs, a plague of, you know, leprosy, if this is not changing this guy's mind, what, what is it going to take? And then God tells Moses this, and he doesn't tell him all the details. He just says, listen, I want you to tell all the people to slaughter a lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of their house, and I'm going to send a death angel, and I'm going to kill the firstborn of all of Pharaoh's house. All of Egypt, I'm going to kill all the firstborn. But I'm not going to kill you guys. Now, God doesn't tell him all the details after that. Okay, and then one week's going to go by, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. Moses was always taking an obedient step of faith every step of the way. He trusted that God could do it. He trusted in God's promise that he was going to deliver his people, but he didn't know exactly how. He didn't know he was going to come up on the Red Sea. He didn't know the Red Sea was going to divide, all that stuff. Part of enduring faith, as we observed with Abraham, it is, we hear this echo, it is walking by faith and not by sight. A lot of it is. Now you hear this, this, this chapter 3 of our confession coming in with this text of God's sovereignty and just resting and trusting that I just have to do what he says and he's going to work it all out. I don't know how he's going to work it out. and It's not going to be easy for me. It's going to be trying. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, there's, there's going to be some trials. It's going to be stressful. It's going to be uncomfortable. But what did Moses do in the Passover? He trusted in the promise, and he did it. He instructed them. And what's even more ironic, these people who didn't have as close of a communion with God, I think it's a great testimony to their faith that they believed it, and they did it. Right? They they weren't having these, they weren't the prophet of God. They weren't the ones receiving the oracle directly from God in the supernatural, uh, miraculous, extraordinary way. They were being told it through a mediator, Moses. But they still did it. And me and you, the best of us would say, you know, could you imagine the news when dad brought it home to the, to the Jewish family who just had a long day of making bricks after, you know, the captain of the guard died because frogs infested his house and he got a disease or whatever and Pharaoh's still not letting him go. He's still holding him under bondage. You know, you'd be like, dad, really? The best lamb? I mean, can we try it a different way? I mean, this guy is not going to give up. We have to trust God. We just have to do what he says. He says that he's going to send a death angel. And and, and if we don't want our firstborn killed, we have to have that blood on the post. Okay, I don't understand everything. I I, I can't figure it all out. Um, But I've been seeing these plagues already. I've been seeing a man who once loved the pleasures of sin converted to someone who actually loves the law of God. You haven't seen a supernatural miracle. I haven't seen a supernatural miracle, at least I don't think. But I've seen a man converted. I've seen a man who loved the pleasures of sin. Now by his sanctified ability in the Spirit of God, seeking to sacrifice for others, right? Brother, that's just as much as of a miracle. You still see miracles today. I still see miracles today. Every single person that calls upon the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is throwing off the shackles of their naturally depraved, darkened heart. And friends, that is nothing less than a miracle. We still see that today. So why would we expect that God won't do great things? Why would we expect in our own day and become apathetic that he can't move the mountains, that he can't you know, do, do whatever he says he's going to do? Of course he will. Of course he will. He's still building his church. 
the Rydells just came back from, uh, you know, a, a wonderful step in our culture of death and lies of two Christians coming together in holy matrimony. They can't control the future in that marriage, but they can hope and pray. They can hope and pray that God will use that to bring about another Christian to that family. Not through birth, of course. No, but that your daughter and your son-in-law will raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And what will happen? By God's grace, a little Amram around Levi will be running around, amen, and live for the Lord. And live for the Lord. This trusting obedience, friends, that we see, whether it is sacrificing for the Passover lamb or whether it's on the precipice of the cliff and behind you, even after God said he would deliver you, got the army coming after you, so you're facing slaughter on one side, drowning on the other side, but you're still willing to obey, and God delivered them. And they simply trusted and obey. Trusting in his precepts. Forsaking the glories and the honors of this world. Moses saw the God of the Bible. He saw the God of the Bible work. He saw the God of the Bible save. And so I think as we look at Moses' life, we have to ask ourselves, have we seen God? Have we seen God? God says to us, you cannot go on. And you think there is no use of going on. That's just fine. God says, you think you can't. I understand that. You think this is crazy what I'm telling you to do, to sacrifice the lamb. I I, I know it's crazy. You you think it's, uh, you know... Uh, crazy for you to follow my, uh, my ways and your word, even though you know this isn't happening in your life, or that's not happening in your life, or whatever's not happening in the church, or what have you. Whatever you can think of. God says, I get it, that's fine. You think that. You're thinking that. But you need to stop thinking that and look upon me. That's what he's saying. What is humanly impossible, we see in Moses' account with the Passover lamb, with the parting of the Red Sea, we see what is humanly impossible is what God actually accomplishes and that he does. We all must learn this lesson that Moses' life teaches us. We all who are truly born again will learn this lesson that Moses' life teaches us. You can have all your plans. You can have all your ways and your your schemes. But you will learn this lesson. That what is not humanly possible, or that seems humanly impossible, it is possible with God. He will teach you that lesson. He is God, not us. He is the sovereign one. We're pleading as Clyde does every day for his mercy to help us to continue to go on. And as we see in the life of Moses, the God of our salvation, he will surely deliver us, friends. Whether it's in this age, whether it was in Moses' times, or whether it will be Christians 500 years from now, the God of our salvation, the one true living God, will always surely rescue his people. Enduring faith, godly faith, is defined as trust, relying on God, while we're looking to the future and obeying even when we don't understand all the details. 
brothers and sisters, chapter 11 in the life of Moses is once again showing us some aspects of enduring faith. As we looked at our Old Testament reading this morning, Zechariah, we need to be reminded of these things in enduring faith, of suffering, keeping our eye on the ball, being willing to do what? Perceive what true treasure is. Be willing to sacrifice things if we need to, even if it causes us something or causes us to even physically suffer, emotionally suffer, whatever it may be, right? And we need to always keep our eye on the ball that this earth is not our home. These things will help us to foster enduring faith. And we will watch with time. And it does take time. We will watch God be faithful in every step as we endure unto the end. We will just watch Him do it. it and, and a lot of times, believe me, I'm learning this as I get older, it, it always has a big left turn in the whole thing. You think you got the chart mapped out, and whoo, there's a big left turn. I didn't plan on that. I didn't want that. I didn't see that coming. But I rest, and I have peace. God, you have it the way it is right now for a reason. You're still on the throne. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing and watch what you do and watch what you will do. And I know you will do something because you're the one true God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lives of these Old Testament saints where there is a reflection of the power of your Spirit working in them. We thank you that the Apostle Paul, he instructed us that they are there so that we can learn, that we could be encouraged with patience and comfort, and that we may have hope even in our day and age. We are, lest we be deceived, O your sons and daughters, the Church of Jesus Christ, and how it refreshes our souls when we see the footsteps of other men in past who have endured much but had remained faithful. Will you, O Father, help us, we pray, to endure unto the very end? Help us to keep this wonderful perspective of your sovereignty, Lord, and our actions in your created sphere and realm, Lord, in a proper balance. And may we rest in that. May we enjoy in that. And Lord, may we continue to move forward in our lives with great hope that you are on the throne. You still have many yet unfulfilled promises to accomplish and that your word is sure and that you will do it. When we, like Moses, O God, are on that precipice of the cliff where there seems to be nowhere to go, drive us to you through Christ, I pray. Help us to remain hopeful. Help us to steadfastly look to you and to know and to trust that you will accomplish all the good things in the life of your church. Restore, I pray, O God, in the evil days in which we live, the joy, the happiness, O Lord, the contentment in the hearts of your people. Help us, O God, to live for Christ more and more each day and to enjoy the sweetness of his fellowship and the blessedness of his salvation that we have through his righteousness and sacrifice. Mold us and make us, O Father. We pray that your spirit will lead and guide, and we ask, O God, that you would make clear to us a continual reminder, make clear to us the purpose of why we are here now in your sovereign scheme of all of creation. Use us for your glory, O God. Use us for your glory, understanding our frailties, understanding all of our weaknesses. But, O Lord, we do confess Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that we are your workmanship, and you have prepared us for a work that you have ordained for us. O Father, you showed it to Moses, and he forsook all of Egypt. Make clear, Lord, in the hearts of your sons and daughters of Zion 
what it is, O God, the work you have for them to do. We bless you and we thank you in his holy and precious name. Amen. Let us rise and go.